You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're going to pick up where we left off last week and continuing our series through the book of Galatians. We really love going through books of the Bible, uh, receiving God's word as it was given, really as a, as a letter of instruction and for our transformation and to know God and his character and nature and um, his will for our life. And so we're going to read this morning in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. Well, if you've missed the first couple weeks of our series in Galatians, uh, good news, um, Paul starts out this passage really as a summary of the first couple chapters of his letter. Paul, the author of this letter, he's writing to a group of new Christian believers who have been distorted. They have distorted the gospel. They have distorted the truth of, of the gospel, which means they've been influenced by incorrect teaching about what it means to find salvation, to be made right with God, to have acceptance with God, forgiveness of sins, and and frankly, this has robbed them of their joy. They have really been spun into, a, into chaos, into kind of spiritual slavery. They're struggling in their lives. And so Paul invites them to rediscover the joy in Christ. And the only way to do this is to clear up the confusion that has really crept into their hearts, the distortion of the gospel that has crept into their hearts. And it's here where Paul articulates one of the most or perhaps the most central and foundational messages in the entire story of God. If we could boil down the story of God in its most condensed reality, it would be here in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me boils it down into its most concise and foundational terms. This is what it means to know God, to find salvation, to be accepted. The yet we know, starting off there where Paul says, yet we know. It's an important place to start because Paul is saying, of course we get this. Of course we all get this. We know that God is gracious, that God is forgiving, that God is good to us and kind. But there's a disconnect between what we believe and how we live. 
And so that's why Paul is saying, you guys, you guys know this. You know that God is gracious. You know he's merciful. But the way that you're living is somehow disconnected from that belief. You see, we can say God is good. But do we really believe that God is good when tragedy happens? How do we place that within the reality of God's goodness? We can say God is faithful, but do we really believe that God is faithful when we are victims of oppression and betrayal, loss of reputation, pain? We can say God is love, but do we really believe that God is love when we keep on sinning, when we keep on disobeying, we keep failing? over and over and over again. Yeah, I know God loves me, but see, that's why Paul comes in and says, you know this. So Paul says, we all know this is how God works. We are Jews, he says. He says, we're Jews, chosen by God, given the law of God. We're the chosen people of God, and we were given the law to follow it, and we failed miserably. He says, we all know this. And therefore, we're under God's judgment. And the only way to find rescue from God's judgment is his grace. We all know this. And that's exactly what he gave us. He gave us his grace. We know this. Paul is almost saying, like, this should be an open and shut case, right? You, he's speaking to a group of Jewish people who have been given the holy oracles of God, the mysteries of God hidden from people from all eternity have now been revealed to the, to, the, to the Jewish people of God. And he says, you have been given this prized knowledge of salvation and you rejected it and, then, and God loved you anyway. We all know this. But you're not living as if you know this. Here's why it's not so much an open, shut case. This, we struggle with the similar things that they're struggling with. No one wants to be told that we're helpless. No one wants to be told that we're hopeless on our own. No one wants to be told that our good works, our character, our record, no one wants to be told that we're not good enough to earn our way to God. No one wants to, be, to feel that our efforts count for nothing when it comes to being loved by God. All of us want to feel that somehow our successes, our achievements, our hard work in this life will be good for something, that will mean something to God, that he'll look at us and say, I want you on my team. We can do this together. We'll be better together. All of us want to feel that we are good, and that's why God loves us. And so it's very humbling to reckon with the grace of God because the grace of God is a confrontation to our pride, our self-righteousness, our ego. I was 17 years old when I moved out of my parents' home. Before I was a legal adult, I was 100% financially responsible for everything I ate, everything I wore, everything I did, everything I bought. I took out school loans. I was in school full-time. I was working 30 hours a week. I ate tuna fish sandwiches probably five days a week, and not the good white albacore stuff, like the pink stuff, like I was getting my daily dose of mercury. You know what I'm talking about? I had that and I had ramen. I had that all the time. I brought, I brought one day a homeless man over to my house to feed him some lunch. He saw what I ate and said, no thanks, I'm okay. Like this is a true story. My student loans became due. Um, I began to pay every month. It was hard. I didn't have any extra money and paying for something that seemed like I wasn't getting anything, you know, it was kind of a 
the education was over, the schooling was done. I had to say no to almost everything in order to be able to pay these loans back. My shoes were from Payless. My pants were from twice as nice, like seriously, and my car roof was held together by duct tape. And these are all true stories. But I still paid every single month. Years go by after paying. I heard that they'd come up with this, you know, federal student loan forgiveness program. And so I went online. And I was like, yes, please. Please forgive my loans. I got an email back and said, I'm sorry, you don't qualify for the loan forgiveness because your account is not delinquent. You have paid every single month. I would qualify for forgiveness if I had never paid at all. I'd find out if, if I never made a payment or just said, you know what, I don't want to pay anymore. Then they would have said, okay, you're forgiven. Why do I tell you this? To make you angry. <laughs> Along with me. To feel a sense of like need for justice for this wrongdoing. Now some of you would feel like that is absolutely horrible. Yeah, I hate that. If, you have, if you've worked hard and if you've paid your student loans and if you have uh, sacrificed a lot in order to pay those back, you will feel angry. But there's also some of you that say, no, I would actually feel a lot of relief if I was forgiven of those loans. I don't want to pay them back. It's inconvenient to pay them back. There's two kinds of responses to something like that. But here's why I tell you this, because if you do feel angry, then you, you'll, you're going to better understand how the critics of the gospel felt in our passage. These critics spent their entire life working for God, following the rules, trying to earn acceptance based on their purity of character, their purity of behavior, their purity of doctrine. They followed it to the T. They memorized the Torah. They did everything that they could. They sacrificed a lot of lifestyle and extracurricular stuff. They were often despised by the world around them. They did it all to do what God said and to be a good person. And along comes Paul and says, the love of God and his full affection and forgiveness of sins is free to all who want it. And they said, you're cheapening our faith that we worked so hard to secure. Get in line, buddy. We have been here long before you. We've been following the rules, praying three times a day, giving our money to the temple, feeding the poor, memorizing scripture, voting Republican. Oh, wait a minute, sorry. We've been, we, we've been doing all the good Christian things. <laughs> We've been doing all the good Christian things that we're supposed to be doing. And then Paul says three times, not by works, not by works, not by works. And three times, faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus. This is what justifies you. This is what makes you acceptable to God. And this is frustrating to those who have worked so hard for it. So now you know how they feel. Those who are truly trying to save themselves, they don't want Jesus to be their savior. So the idea of being made right with God by grace through faith, as, as wonderful as that sounds, it's offensive. Because we want our hard work to count for something. What about all the effort I put in? What about all the blood, sweat, and tears? What about all the sacrifices, all the things that I've done? Let me say one more thing about this, and then we'll talk about what Paul says we should do about it. 
Uh, we're all trying to find salvation in one way or another, right? It doesn't have to be in the law of God. So we say finding salvation. We don't mean only in a religious sense. It doesn't have to be through religion. But we're all trying to find salvation. At its basic level, we're trying to find a sense of what makes uh, us truly satisfied, fulfilled, safe, secure, accepted, loved, valuable, good enough. We're all trying to answer that unasked question, are we good And how do we know? We can define this in different ways. We can define it through eternal life, through success in business, success in a relationship, a beautiful home, a nice car, sans duct tape, right? Good fashion, a financial stability loved and adored by others, national political identity. We, we, we can look at, through uh, salvation and try to find salvation in that sense of, I am good, and here is why I am good. Through many different avenues. And it may not be through the law of God, but we have laws that we follow in order to secure for ourselves the peace and the joy that we're looking for. We write laws for ourselves. People write laws for us. We abide by those laws, or sometimes we reject laws, but even the, re- the laws that we reject are in an attempt to feel fulfilled. And Paul will say later in this letter, if you put your ultimate energy into these things, you will work very hard and get nothing, and it will have all been for nothing. You will spend your entire life working hard, and it won't matter. Every Christian has a different story of conversion, right? But they have all one thing in common. There's a point of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. A point of recognizing the places and people that you sought for salvation that were fruitless and left you nowhere, and oftentimes even in a worse place, turning to Jesus and trusting in him. It's an understanding that salvation is not something that we achieve, but it is given as a gift that we received in faith. And to rephrase Paul's opening argument, we could ask something like this. Are you a Christian today? And I want you to consider this. If you are a Christian today, are you a Christian today because you sorted out your life or because you put your faith in Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you? That's what Paul's asking. And the Jewish people among all the people would know it wasn't because of them, because they were the ones who actually paid on time, did all their work, followed God's commands, and they were the ones who then crucified Christ. They were the ones who killed the prophets of God that came to them. They were the ones who, who, who their history is defined by a pattern of being blessed by God, twisting those blessings, disobeying God, idolizing things in their world, crying out for rescue, and then God every single time proving faithful. And so they say, we know it wasn't because of us. And we are not rescued because we sorted out our life. It's because of Jesus. So our problem is that we too easily forget this. Too easy to forget that our, sal- our places of salvation and rescue and fulfillment often leave us so still restless, and Jesus alone can save. So, so what are we to do? Paul leads us there. 
After reasoning with them, Paul tells us this in verse 19 to 20. Read it again. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I wonder how many people here need to maybe hear that last part and be reminded that this is how God feels about you. That he loves you and gave himself for you. What a tender way of describing the relationship with Jesus that Paul has. The key here in knowing what to do is found in identifying with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. What do we do when we're caught in these patterns of self-salvation and working our way to God and feeling restless? What do we do when we have distorted the gospel? Because Paul says, he says, if you add anything to this good news, anything to the grace of God, you have distorted the gospel and it's no gospel at all. It's something entirely different. And so he's inviting people back to a purity of what it means to essentially be a Christian, to follow Jesus, to trust in him. And so the key here is found in his death and resurrection. The first is identifying with Christ's death means welcoming the death of ourselves. Here's how we do this. Right, what, do we, what do I mean by this? By identifying with Christ's death means welcoming the death of ourselves. For many, growing in faith means this. It means becoming a better version of yourself, becoming a better person, or becoming the person that God wants you to be. So when you think about, am I growing in faith, you're thinking, well, am I becoming a better person? God is not wanting you to be the best you that you can be. He's not wanting you to be the best version of yourself that you can be. He's wanting you and I to be like Jesus. And so Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is a comment from a, from a person who understands so deeply in the depth of their heart that a life of faith is lived out not with a focus on our character, but rather on our fellowship with Jesus. This is a comment of, of, from a person that says, my standing with God, my joy in this life is not based on how well I am doing. But it is so deeply rooted in my fellowship and communion with Jesus. So much so that I am continually putting myself to death. I am dying continually daily. I am decreasing in my life so that Jesus can increase in my life. Because my satisfaction, my joy will come in through my fellowship with him. Not through my bettering of myself, my character, my reputation. Is there something in your life that brings you shame, brings you embarrassment, brings you grief about yourself? Is there pride or anger or lust? That's what Christ wants to kill in you. That's what he wants to, whoops-a-daisy. Sorry, who says whoops-a-daisy? Only like four-year-old girls. Sorry, it's just an heirloom Persian rug. We're okay. Okay. What was I saying? Um, <laughs> it's those things that we see in our heart that we look into and say, this is what I don't like about myself, and I know this is what God doesn't like about me either. It's those things that we need to put to death that he is wanting to put to death in us. And he does this by accepting us, by his grace. 
He does this by conforming us more into the image of his son. He does this by, be, by being righteous himself and taking our guilt and our shame and all of our sin, our horrible record on the cross, crucifying it there in all of its shame and all of its embarrassment and giving us his righteousness. He transforms us the more and more that we are putting to death ourselves and allowing him to live in us. And that happens through a work of faith, a continual remembrance, a continual rest, a continual trusting in what he has done for us. Paul does not say, I'm really, really going to make an effort to identify with Christ. Today's the day that I identify with Christ. Or today's, it's my intention to identify with Christ. I'm going to do it finally. But he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Period. I mean, just this, this resolute, firm declaration. It's a faith of knowing who he is in Christ. Remember Paul, the man who sought to dismantle the early church, who's responsible for the murder of many Christians, who sought to discredit Christ and his message. And he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is a real relationship. This is a real bond of friendship, of fellowship, it is the belief he talks about in verse 16 when he says, we are made right with God by grace through faith so that all that Christ accomplished on the cross for us is accomplished in us. All that Jesus did on the cross has been accomplished in us. If Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that means our guilt, our shame, our alienation from God, the judgment because of our disobedience, it has all been wiped clean. We have fellowship with Christ, and yet our circumstances may have not changed. They may be the same, but our motivation is radically different for why we do anything. We, we live our lives and everything in them to know him more, to enjoy him more, to glorify him more. And it's not, it's not complicated why we do this. Why would we do that? Why would we give our life to, to God? Why would we focus each moment on decreasing ourself and putting to death ourself and our pride and our self-righteousness. Why would we do that? Paul makes it very clear. He says, because he loves me and gave himself for me. You see this? He doesn't say, well, because it's just the right thing to do, so get in line. Everybody be a better Christian. The reasoning behind Paul's dedication and commitment is based on the love of God. He says, because he loves me and he gave himself for me. It's not complicated. I love that Paul's theology is, is complicated enough for a scholar to study the rest of his or her life and still not completely understand and, and simple enough for a child who says whoops-a-daisy to understand a child can get this. What does it mean Mommy and daddy, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means we believe and trust that Jesus, he loves us. He gave himself for us. And that simple thing, that childlike belief, is the most transformational and profound truth in all the world. 
And if you can believe that and, pr- and apply that to your life, it will change your entire life. We don't acknowledge this enough, that Jesus loves us. He gave himself for us. Here's the point of conflict when it comes to faith. You see, we say, Jesus, I'll follow you everywhere. Jesus, I will be a good Christian. I will not fail you. And then Jesus says, okay, I want you to go here. In this place that your heart, that you don't want to go, that you've been hiding from, this is where I want you to go. Did I say everywhere? I kind of meant, you know, like wherever is like convenient. I don't want to follow you there. That's scary. That's uncomfortable. That's, that's messy. I don't like that. I didn't know this is what it meant to follow you. I mean, I've been doing all the right things, right? I've been doing all the good Christian things. And it's all about that. The gospel's all about death and resurrection. If Jesus wasn't spared from it, then why do we think we'd be spared from it? If Jesus wasn't spared from being put to death, why do you think that we're going to be spared from being put to death most of us not in a physical sense because of our faith of course but a different kind of dying dying to ourselves a dying to our pride and self-righteousness to our temptations to our sin jesus and peter had this confrontation peter says i'll never betray you famous last words right i will never betray you when everyone else falls away i'll be right there with you And Jesus says, you're going to betray me three times when I need you the most. Jesus would love him and die for him, and Peter would realize what a life of faith really meant. He would realize that a life of faith was not based on Peter's Peter's ambition and his promises and faithfulness to Jesus, but rather on Jesus' love for him and sacrifice for him and faithfulness to him. So much so that Peter would then go to the cross himself and die, but he says, don't, don't crucify me right side up like my Savior. I'm not worthy. Crucify me upside down. Peter is crucified in Rome upside down. We see this progression in Peter's faith that really should be like our progression as well. A progression that says, wow, what a great thing that God has done for me. I am then going to commit my life to him and I will never disappoint him. We fail utterly and miserably in that effort. And we still see the faithfulness of God and his love poured out for us. We see his grace and his gift of his mercy. And that everything that we are is because of an act of his love for us. We see that the the key of growing in Christ is to die to ourselves and to live to Christ. And this progression to the point of spiritual maturity where we then say, I'm not even worthy to die like Jesus. That's how much I love him. That's how much I identify with his crucifixion. That's how much I want to be like him. To the point of saying, I have nothing but Christ. And if there's any good in me, it's only, it's only what Jesus has put in there. This is the process that we too need to be on. You cannot get the gospel without the painful loss of our pride and self-justification. We must decrease and God must increase. We cannot get the gospel. We cannot have this deep and meaningful connection and fellowship with Jesus and expect not to suffer the loss of ourselves. They didn't tell you that in the membership class, did they? (laughs) They didn't tell you that in Christianity 101, that this invitation to relationship with Jesus is an invitation into pain. 
But it's those very things that he wants to rip from you, or it's those things that you are trusting in that are going to be futile, that are going to rob you of your joy, because the devil desires to, to rob, to kill, and to destroy, to tempt you, to, to convince you that you can do this on your own, and a life of ease and comfort is the path that God wants for you. We see the opposite. Even Jesus was not spared from suffering. Once you say that, that one commandment is needed, once you say that I must do this or be this in order to be the person that I want to be before God, in order to be loved by God, and if you do that one time, then logically you must obey every commandment that God has ever commanded. And by that point, your salvation is just wrecked. If you say, but I must do this, I must be this, then you got to do it all. And that's what Paul is saying to these Christians when they're saying, you, you have to do this, you have to be circumcised, you have to add this to the grace of God. Yes, God, he loves us and he's gracious to us, but we have to obey these things in order to feel accepted with him. And he says, well, then you've got to obey everything. And then you're wrecked. Then you're back right where you started, completely and utterly in a ditch, depraved because of your own sin. But that's okay because not only is it, do we identify with the death of Christ, we also identify with Christ's resurrection, which means welcoming the truest hope of salvation. And we said that we're, that we're all trying to find salvation, but only by identifying with Christ and his resurrection will, will that happen in the truest sense possible. We're all trying to save ourselves. We're all trying to find peace, rescue, comfort in this life and, and hope in the future. And the only way to have that truly is in identifying with the resurrection of Christ. We find ourselves lacking peace and joy and self-importance. And we see that Christ redeems us from that guilt, from that shame of sin by becoming sin for us. He takes our place. He goes to the cross. He dies in our place, sinless, and he takes upon our sin. Instead of being condemned by God, instead of God condemning us, Jesus is condemned in our place. And he died and he rose from the grave and he provides uh, he proves that we will never be sorry for putting our trust in him. His resurrection proves to us no matter what we lose, no matter what sense of ourselves that we lose, no matter how painful it is uh, to put to death the sin in our life, we will never be sorry. I stand before you today as one who says, following Jesus, no matter how hard, will always be worth it. I hope I continue to say that until the day I die. I hope that that is our cry from our heart every single day, that making that choice to identify with him, to choose him, to follow him and love him, to reorient my mind and my thinking according to his love for me and the grace that he's poured out for me, I, I hope I'll always say it'll be worth it. That everything else is fleeting, that everything else is an empty promise. You know, talking about faith, we've been doing that for quite a while now, but talking about faith can be a little bit misleading. And we often talk about faith as something that we have, or we find, keep, or we lose. Uh, you know, I found faith. I have faith. I, I, you know, keep holding on to the faith. Don't lose your faith. But faith is not something that we find, or keep, or lose, or have. Faith is a relationship of trust with a person. It's with Jesus. The analogy, this analogy might be helpful to you. Um, imagine a woman who's a world-famous tightrope walker, and uh, she has this ambition of walking across a tightrope suspended over the Grand Canyon. 
No doubt the, the news of this incredible uh, feat it draws the attention of news agencies and crowds come and watch her. Millions of people tune in to watch her cross the Grand Canyon on this tightrope. And she does it. And she finishes and she goes across and it's amazing and people cheer. But she does more than just walk. She starts making it more difficult. Every time she completes a pass, she makes it more difficult. Who thinks I can cross without the balance pole? Oh, yeah, maybe you can do it. Yeah, we hope you can do it. <laughs> she does it. She gets across. Some doubted, but now they're kind of won over. Who thinks I can go, you know, juggling three oranges along the tribal? Oh, there's no way. But she does it. And they're like, wow, you can do it. One day she brings a wheelbarrow to the tightrope and asks, who thinks I can go across with this wheelbarrow? Yeah, you can do it. You've done everything else. By now, people have seen her do quite a bit. And she does it. The next day, she comes back with that wheelbarrow. Who thinks I can go across this tightrope with this wheelbarrow with somebody in it? Of course you can do it. Any volunteers? No. Faith. You see, this is, what Paul is saying is there's a, there's a distinguishing mark of faith in just intellectual assent to like, we believe this to be true, and then putting ourselves in the wheelbarrow and saying, my life is in your hands. There's a difference. It's an example of saving faith. This analogy is an example of saving faith because it distinguishes a faith in just intellectual belief and actually faith in Jesus that is trust in him. I believe you can, and I trust that you can. And so I'm not afraid of putting to death myself so that you might live in me. Our problem is that we often return to legalism when we forget that Jesus is the one who saves us. And that's why Paul says, we know this. Of course we know that Jesus saves, but will you trust him with your life? Well, I, you know, life is hard, and you know, I just... I, well, then you don't believe that he can save. You don't believe he's good. You don't believe he's right. You don't believe he's gracious. You don't believe he's loving and merciful and forgiving. We're invited not into a faith that is some you know, abstract truth or a list of theological terms and guidelines. It's much more personal. It's a relationship with a person. So personal that we're humbled by the thought of Christ dying for us that we would be moved and compelled to a lifestyle, a way of living because Jesus loves me and died for me. So personal that we're daily putting to death our self-righteousness and our pride. Why? In order to live in Christ. In order to identify with him. In order to enjoy the communion that comes with walking with him every day so personal that perhaps we could insert our name here in Galatians chapter 2 and truly mean it. We put up that slide. Just silently, would you, would you put your name in there and read that to yourself? Do you believe it? Is it true? Will you say it again this afternoon when you, when you don't believe it? Will you say it again when you're, you're fighting with your spouse, when you can't forgive the person who's betrayed you? Will you do it again when the bottom of your life falls out and you 
are scared and confused, will you believe this? There's no more central theme in all of Scripture that we must take hold of than this, that we are justified by faith in Jesus. That he loves us, that he gives his life to us. And we go on living now in the flesh, but it is not you and I that are living by our ambition, our effort, our righteousness, but it is Christ who lives in us, and we are so connected with him that he influences every emotion, every thought, every action. And when we fail to do that, we don't make promises to him that we will never do that again. We come back to this passage. We rehearse it. We take hold of it. We get in the wheelbarrow. We let him lead us through our life.